Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Monday the 20th of August with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The papal visit in five days time is marred in the controversy over child clerical sexual abuse. Pope Francis will be expected to apologise on foot of the grand jury report in Pennsylvania which showed how the church protected 300 paedophile priests who raped and abused at least 1,000 children. Irish survivors have sought for the Pope to meet with them in public, while Francis's record on child protection has been described as dismal by Ian Elliott, the man who oversaw the National Board for Safeguarding Children in the Catholic Church here. He says that the Pope has to map out how it intends to protect children rather than just apologise for the damage done to those children. The Vatican has expressed its shame and sorrow, but the church has been sorry many times over. Brendan Smith, the most notorious paedophile priest in this country, brought down a government and inspired the church to apologise, but he had been abusing children over a 40-year period. In order to protect him, he was moved from parish to parish. Two of his victims were questioned by a priest in 1975 and made to sign an oath of silence. That priest, Sean Brady, went on to be a cardinal and the primate of all Ireland. Smith abused children in Ireland, America, Wales and Italy. At least 143 children fell victim to the predator who died in prison just one month into a 12-year sentence. Loretto Martin was one of Brendan Smith's victims or survivors as the case is now. She's with us uh, this morning Uh, and I I think it's true to say that uh, the abuse that you suffered at the hands of that paedophile was terrible, to say the least. Um, yeah, it was. Um, I suppose if if I was asked <clears throat> which was the hardest, the abuse happened. And when I discovered in 2010 that Sean Brady knew that Brendan Smith was stretching children's bodies beyond the point of pain, I was actively suicidal. I couldn't, I just couldn't fathom that somebody else knew. And that was Paddy's week. And then on Paddy's day, um, Sean Brady went into a church, which I can't go into. He apologised and he brought Jesus, Mary, Joseph, Patrick and Peter into his apology. I was raped in the name of Jesus, Mary, Patrick and Joseph. Um. He said that he was the wounded healer and yet Brendan Smith told me that I was going into the flames of hell if I didn't let him do what he needed to do. Um, So Sean Brady said that he was led by the spirit. That's not the spirit that I believe in. 
Um, I believe his apology came from his head, not from his heart. So, and we've had that nationwide and worldwide. Um, so I do, I do, um, I hope that's answered your question, has it, Michael? Yeah, well, I mean, we've spoken many times over the years yeah. and you've told me uh, in some detail what Brendan Smith did to you physically and sometimes it haunts me. It must be a terrible thing to have to live with. What did it do to you psychologically, would you say? Um, I suppose I would always say I was one of the lucky, unlucky ones, given the fact that when I left school, I now I did go off the rails until I was 24. Then I met Patsy, my husband. Um, we had two children. Um, I had a job that I loved. It was a great life. Um, so in that time, I learned that there's another way to feel. I learned that what it was like to be in love and to love and to be loved. Um, an awful lot of people don't have that. They've always remembered and they've never had the opportunity that I had. But in my daily life, I know there's always going to be triggers and those triggers are very difficult to manage and to cope with. But I do I do the best I can, you know, but there are always, and particularly at times like this, mm. when you hear all this shit coming out again, again, the same old crap, it is very, very difficult it's extremely difficult to manage because it, it's like, are they ever, ever going to learn? And you felt guilty, I think, for what happened to you for oh, a all, long time. All the, yeah. Like it was my fault. I mean, yeah. he told me that mm. I was going to go into the flames of hell and that he was the one that was making me, he was healing me, he mm. was making me good again. And then when he took pictures, like a good day for me was when I was just raped. A bad day was when I was raped and pictures taken. And he said that he'd have to have the pictures under his pillow because I needed extra prayers to be saved from the fires of hell. So, yeah, mm. I I believed I was that bad that he had to do this. Yeah, mm. I you believed it was my fault. Yeah, broke your silence, spoke publicly. Uh, I'd say. 15, 16, 17 years ago, I can't remember exactly when, but you spoke to me then uh, under uh, uh, an alias, you called yourself Samantha, we distorted your voice so that you could tell the story and so on, and uh, it it uh, shocked the nation at at the time. Since then, uh, you've decided uh, that you've nothing to be ashamed of, uh, and you speak now as Loretto Martin, the person you are, uh, which gives more weight, obviously, to what you're saying, and people uh, can look at your record and your bona fides and so on. Uh, But whilst you've done all of that, uh, which I know hasn't been easy, uh, uh, and did it with the intention of trying to bring about change, uh, we meet again and here we are having a similar conversation to the ones, the many conversations we've had over the years. Uh, What's happened in America is truly appalling. It's appalling everywhere. It's it's like in 2010, using the name Samantha, I asked for a nationwide investigation funded by the church and run by the state. When I used to, when I went out and used my own name in 15 or 16, I can't remember, I asked for the same thing. Um, like now, what the only thing the Pope can actually do, because words don't mean anything, he needs to say to all of his parishes in the world, put forward all your books, get somebody independent to go in there, root out all the crap mm. and let's move on. Mm. You know, let's move on. But, I mean, does it matter what the Pope says? I mean, we've heard... Well, he is supposed to be the head of the church and, I mean, he's supposed to be the leader 
and it is the power is with him to point a finger and say, take out all your books, you know, stop protecting mm. the church. This is about letting people and the Catholic Church in its totality mm. move on. There's a, a, a priest in Pennsylvania, uh, people can read about this in the Irish Times today, it's a very shocking story and, and shocking in that uh, there's nothing unusual about it. It's very typical of the type of, of stories we've heard before, very typical of uh, Brendan Smith's story. Uh, David Crowley was the name of this priest and he retired in 2003. Uh, he'd been a, a priest uh, in this parish since 1969. Uh, he'd uh, abused... Uh, I think it was 99 children uh, that were identified. Uh, But uh, this uh, cardinal who withdrew from uh, the World Meeting of Families on Friday uh, is the cardinal who accepted his resignation. Uh, The families uh, in his parish are only finding out now uh, that when he retired in 2003, 15 years ago, it was because of the allegations of abuse against him. And I'd wonder, where was he put after that? Was he left where children were um, vulnerable? You know, where was he put? Mm. And where is he now? And I suppose, you know, for if if bishops and hierarchy who actually do this moving of people around and uh, enable children to be raped and abused, a lot of people I know who have been abused as children are living on the dole mm. because they haven't had the uh, the ability to put it behind them or not or to not think about it mm. and they're not able to move up the work ladder i would like to see these bishops living on the dole you know getting an, an idea of what it is like for survivors who just are not able to... I was lucky I forgot mm. about it. But or, if I or, didn't or forget about uh, it... On the dole or in prison? Uh, I mean, we've uh, an Australian prison, cardinal... Prison, we'll have to pay for them. I'll have to mm. pay for them. Well, so we've why, that Australian cardinal under house arrest. Yeah, house arrest with three-course meals and everything, mm. you know, that's not... Uh, that's not, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Car- Cardinal Whirl uh, was accused by the grand jury uh, of covering up sex uh, abuse. Uh, he was to speak at the World Meeting of Families. Uh, he was also uh, associated with uh, a Father McCarrick, uh, a notorious paedophile, as was the organiser of this event, Cardinal Kevin Farrell, uh, who's a Dublin-born priest. Uh, and there's calls for him to withdraw and calls for a third cardinal uh, to withdraw and uh, we then have uh, the cardinal in Boston uh, O'Malley who has withdrawn because of investigations that are taking place uh, uh, into abuse at a a seminary there it's like it's it's laughable really Michael like that's what I'm saying it's 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 worldwide now it's not just Mm. Ireland and but when people say that the Pope shouldn't just apologise he should take action uh, that's what I'm taking action means going in and like when I, I I didn't, I don't listen to the news Michael, I don't read papers but when I knew I was coming on here I kind of took a bit of an interest and he, did he go over to Chile and then he gave out to survivors, told them they were lies liars, then he came back and summoned a hundred yeah, a hundred arch 
them big fellas, Arch, mm-hmm. whatever they are. And um, he accepted three or seven resignations. Mm-hmm. He shouldn't have accepted resignations. He should have said, you, 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 bye bye. Mm. He stood by the bishops, accused the victims of wrongdoing, then apologised. Uh, and uh, I think some people had the impression that he was sacking the bishops, but uh, whilst they did tender the resignations, he, he only accepted a handful, or uh, has only accepted a handful so far. I, I just, like, that's, mm. I, I just can't, ex- I, I don't understand that. I mm. don't understand that, Michael. I really don't. And even if one person has made a complaint, it's like, I, I can't imagine somebody saying these things without them actually mm. happening. I, I really can't. So the one person, should be believed mm. and action should be taken. Uh, and you talked uh, about Brendan Smith abusing and raping you in the name of God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. We, we heard similar stories. I, I found it very striking. I was thinking of you when I was listening to the, the Attorney General outline some of uh, the stories of the children in Pennsylvania and on occasion uh, it was that you were sinning or go to hell or these things yeah. that you were told. Yeah, like that's... Mm. That's that's how they actually got me. Um, you know, when I was raped, I felt I was in hell. And then when he said, "I, the rest of me would be in the flames," and I thought, "I can't have that." I just I couldn't cope with that. Um, I s- took tablets. I stopped eating. I did everything. Self harmed everything that to tell the adults in my life that this was going on. However. If it was nowadays, straight away you'd cop on. But back then, even if I had said something, which I wouldn't have because I just didn't want to go to hell, I don't think I would have been believed. Like it's, it's, you know, Michael, it's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. Mm. And it's, it's even more unbelievable as we go along. But they knew. Uh, I mean, they sent priests for treatment. Uh, they moved them to other parishes. In the case of Brent Smith, he was moved to other parishes. Uh, and the next parish didn't know the type of person he was. They didn't tell him, the the, the, the bishop of the parish mm. that he was going to, that uh, this fellow was raping children. I know some bishops in place at the minute who actually were aware that priests would be moved around. Mm. So there's some lovely fellas on the ground that I would love to see up there in the hierarchy because I can guarantee you they'd make a difference. And mm. they walk the walk. They talk what they say. They live. And that's what's needed. I I do have huge sympathy for and I have respect for the Catholics in Ireland who actually believe in the Pope and believe in everything. And I suppose I I do have sympathy for them because this is very difficult for them. You know, this is what they believe and particularly the elder generation. This is what they believe in. This is what the way they were reared. And then all of a sudden you have all of this coming out. That's hugely difficult for them. And when Brendan Smith was uh, abusing you, you were obviously a good Catholic schoolgirl because, uh, as you say, you were afraid of going to hell at the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah uh, are you a Catholic now? Um, no, I'm not. But I'm looking for something. Uh, I would like... I do want something. And... I suppose there's there's a place beside where I live. It's it's called Ontober and it's um it's a Spurton community. And I did a course I did a couple of courses there mm. um and it's a fantastic environment. But it's the community within the building and the scenery that have actually 
helped me believe, yeah, actually, Loretta, there is something. There's hope. There's hope. There, There is hope. These people, like you can walk in any time of the day, make yourself a cup of tea and there'll always be someone there if you wanted to talk, mm. you know, and they do courses to try and bring the community in to involve the community in what they're doing. That's hope. And yeah. that's, that's that's pastoral work, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's yeah. what I believe it's mm. supposed to be about. So, yeah, I, you know, something may come out of it for me, mm. but I certainly, you know, that I have, I go there for yoga. I go there for meditation. <laughs> like it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant place. Mm. And they, to me, walk the walk. Uh, there's a, another suggestion as to what uh, the Pope can do locally and globally, I think, uh, from a group called bishopsaccountability.org. Uh, and I was reading this in the Irish Independent this morning, and they're going to publish a, a list of 70 priests who have credible claims against them. And they've compiled this uh, from the various reports that we've had in this country, the Ferns Report, the Murphy Report, and so on. Uh, and uh, they're asking the papal nuncio to ask the Pope to take this approach that if a credible claim is made uh, against a priest or a brother or a nun that their name is published um well i would always believe you're 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 innocent until you're proved guilty however if as i said earlier i can't believe somebody would actually say something if it wasn't true so i would certainly have them out of the reach of children. Like, I, I know there, there's some priests mm. who are out of the reach of children, supposedly, and yet they're, they're working with children. Mm. You know, so it's, it's concerning that the communities or the orders or the parishes don't seem to um, follow through on protecting children. And sometimes it's difficult to believe, hard to imagine, uh, much easier to think that's not possible uh, because like Brendan Smith uh, this priest in Pennsylvania who they're describing as the hero of the Holy Angels Parish uh, he was loved by the community he, he left uh, I think uh, for two years at one stage when he came back they had a street party for him mm. uh, and Brendan Smith was like that people loved Brendan Smith didn't they not knowing he, he had a way of um, sucking you in yeah he had a way of um, gaining trust. Um, but yet, like, that's that's the deed. Mm. But how do we prevent that from happening again? Mm. That's always my, my mantra. Like, yeah. how are we going to make sure... And at times, I think, over the years, you felt we were getting closer, you know, with... Uh, Dermot Martin coming to Dublin and things I like that. I think he's brilliant. I think improvements. he's just pure... Yeah. Like, he yeah. says mm. what... What what I'd be saying, but we're still here, uh, and uh, I mean, we've had this resignation recently of uh, Bishop McAreevy uh, and the terrible stories that he was apparently aware of. Uh, but uh, I remember the time when you had Reverend moved from Brendan Smith's grave, mm. uh, and that was a, a triumph of sorts. Uh, it was huge for me, yeah. yeah, huge moving on. Um, now, while I asked for it, um, I didn't think because the reception was no, like he died a priest or whatever. But uh, I discovered subsequently that they knew an awful lot more than they were telling me. However, 
I asked for that. That was very important to me to have that removed. Um, And when I went in that gate and there was eight or nine men down on the right hand side and I knew Brendan Smith was on the left and I lost my footing when when I saw he had, I can't remember now, was a reverend or father. And I thought, as I said to, um, I think it was Jared Cusick, I said, you know, Brandon Smith raped and abused me. He took photographs. He, um, all the things he did. And yet you're choosing to leave him with Reverend. Um, and a month later it was removed. And for me, that was, that meant an awful lot to me because like I have a lot of religious connections, huge religious mm. connections, and I respect them all. Mm. And I hope that they have done nothing to tarnish their 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 Christ-like walk of life, mm. if you like. But um, yeah, that meant a lot to me. That that was that's action. That's that's action. Like words couldn't have mm. given me the the. But it, it was action by the Nobertines, and I think this is what I'm saying. It said sorry. Uh, it, it is maybe didn't say sorry, but it, it is recognised the damage done to you by taking that honour, if you like, mm. a- away from that paedophile, taking the word reverend off his gravestone. Uh, and that was a recognition. And I, I think at the time that gave hope, at the time of oh, Francis you? becoming Pope, it gave hope. Uh, but they're saying that what's happening in Philadelphia is going to be followed by one American state after another. That's why, you know, the Pope, he he actually, what he needs to do is get rid of all his cronings in the back and his advisors and bring in lay people. Lay people who have child protection as their core rather than people who are in there that have protecting the church as their core value. Mm. Um, Cardinal O'Malley was to give or to um, curate uh, the talk on child protection, I think, which is like ironic it, given that he's pulled out of this. Yeah, and, it's, mm. it's just, yeah, it's, it's, do you know what? It just, <laughs> you have mm. to laugh, Michael, yeah. because if you don't, you'd really get, you'd go under. Um, it's laughable, mm. but it's, it, but it is too serious. Do you want to meet with the Pope? I like Francis. I won't give him his title yet until he does a bit of action. Mm. But I like him. I like his eyes. I like his smile. Mm. I think he has a good heart. If you did meet with him, what would you say to him? Get rid of all them gobchites and and get in the lay people and order every single parish in the world. Take out everything. Let it be out there. Look into it. People who have done wrong, put them on the dole and let's move on. Okay, listen, thanks for coming into us this morning. Very welcome. It's always nice to see you. That's uh, Loretto Martin. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Independent Alliance of Government Ministers have put forward their budget proposals to the government in a document under four categories. One of them is respecting our older citizens. And as part of that, they are suggesting that this €1,000 granny grant, as it's become known, would be introduced. But there's more to this. They're also talking about two weeks unpaid leave for a year for work 
workers so that they could look after elderly parents if need be. Uh, they're also suggesting uh, that investors would build multiple homes uh, so that people would be able to downsize uh, and uh, that uh, there would be an extra 10% of the purchase price in tax on each property. Uh, They're also uh, saying that a proportion of properties would be made available to people if uh, they thought uh, that they could live in smaller homes. Uh, Grants for older people who wish to convert homes then into subunits so that they could rent them out. Uh, They're also talking about reinstating the bereavement grant, introducing an additional uh, payment Christmas bonus of €100 for pensioners who live alone to reduce prescription charges from €20 to €15. Some of the proposals the independent ministers are suggesting. We're joined by Peter Kavanagh, Head of Communications and Public Affairs with Active Retirement Ireland. Peter, uh, that's uh, quite a long wish list, isn't it? It is, and it's it's incredibly unusual to see this length of a wish list coming from a party that isn't, bear in mind, in opposition, but rather forms part of the government. So it's unusual to see this many kites being flown. And, you know, there's a lot to parse in there, Michael, and uh, and some of it is, is quite positive. Some of it will undoubtedly be welcomed by people, but some of, some of it is is not only a little bit fanciful, some of it is quite quite poorly researched and quite poorly worked out. And, you know, the kite that was flown initially two or three weeks ago was the granny grant. It's mm. come to be now the uh, €1,000 that would be given to grandparents who were looking after their um, their, their grandchildren. Uh, like, w- we released a statement at the time in active retirement. We said that they'd be much, much better because they're in government. They'd be much, much better served working out why older people are being called upon to, to serve as unpaid and paid childminders. You know, why is it that quality life has gotten to the point where both both uh, halves of a couple have to work in order to pay mortgages or, or to afford rent and this is why children are being uh, looked after because childcare has become uh, completely unaffordable for working people. But that was something they could put their efforts into and again we look at some of the, the proposals in, in, in this one and they're equally as, as poorly thought out like there's, um, there's something that keeps rearing its head all the time. Whenever we talk about the housing crisis we talk about older people who live in big houses and maybe they live on their own and we talk about incentive them to downsize. But realistically, with the level of supply the way it is right now, if you free up a big four or five bedroom house in an urban area like Drogheda or Dundalk or Navan, you just you don't help a first-time buyer who can't afford that or who can't get a mortgage to buy that big a house. You just help the cash buyers. Mm. And then what you do is you put the older person in direct competition with the first-time buyer to buy this smaller two-bedroom or three-bedroom house. So mm. it doesn't work at the moment when supply is critically low. Okay, what, However, about, a, what about a student moving in though or something and renting it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, a student moving in and renting it is good and this is why we mm. welcome this uh, grant to sort of, um, you know, partition up a house and to sublet off a little uh, a granny flat or, or, or equivalent to that. The only problem is that the danger is that this it makes people think that they have to work long into retirement because being a landlord isn't as simple as just collecting the rent as anybody who's listening in and who rents knows being a landlord means you're responsible for an awful lot of uh, uh, activities in the property you have to look after all of the repairs you have to mm. look after uh, making sure the utilities are in uh, you know and this is a lot a lot of a yeah. burden to be putting on all and there's a, a danger as well that it, there's a danger as well I, I think that it might stigmatize people people might feel responsible for the housing crisis that they shouldn't be living in their house on their own. Well, look, these are people who've paid for their houses. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, At the end what, of the day, mm-hmm. 
they don't they don't do anyone any favors by going back into the property market and going head to head with a young couple or a young uh, urban professional who's looking to to get a start on the on, on the property ladder and and get a house. Now, one of the things that we would welcome is there's a proposed tax on buying additional properties. That's certainly something that really isn't too relevant to older people, Mm. but it certainly is relevant to the housing crisis and would maybe discourage people from buying multiple properties and renting them out at extortionate prices. Leave them on the property market and let people get their hands on them. Um, You know, it would also discourage this this huge level of of, uh, short-term letting we've seen through sites like Airbnb that's really contributing to the housing crisis as well. So that's positive. And we'd also welcome this idea that if developers are building housing estates, that they should build a certain amount of properties that would be open to older people who would want to downsize. So these small age-proof apartments or, you know, small bungalows, uh, you know, completely and totally accessible for people living with disabilities or older people who are more uh, frail or infirm. That's a fantastic idea, but that has to come long, long, long before you incentivize older people to move out of the houses. We need the houses for them to move into. So there's one or two little things we'd welcome. Mm-hmm. I should mention as well, credit where credit's due, they're calling for the restoration of the bereavement grant of €850 Euros when someone is left bereaved. So a widow or a widower would qualify for a one-off €850 Euro payment. That's something that was taken off older people several years ago and it really has hurt the most vulnerable at the worst possible time. It's something you don't think you'll need and then all of a sudden you lose the person you've shared your life with and your income is cut in half and this little tiny grant 850 not a lot in the grand scheme of things mm. went a long long way so we'd very much welcome the restoration of that one and, and that's something we, we, we would uh, we would applaud them for bringing up but uh, to be honest with you the whole thing is a little bit confusing for because these are cabinet ministers these are discussions that they're meant to be having in cabinet they're not an opposition party so a pre-budget submission like this it's highly unusual to see to be honest with you Okay, but as you say, some good parts to it, uh, as well as some which you feel are not particularly well thought through. I suppose it's given us all food for thought, which in itself is probably not a, a bad thing. Uh, we leave it there for the moment, though, Peter, and thank you indeed for joining us. Peter Kavanagh, Head of Communications and Public Affairs with Active Retirement Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the cost of uh, renting somewhere to live has almost uh, doubled for a lot of uh, tenants uh, across uh, the country. It's part of uh, the ongoing housing crisis. And as a result of that, Threshold is uh, saying that we've a broken housing market. John Mark McCafferty is uh, the chief executive officer of Threshold. He's on the line. John Mark Every three months, uh, we talk about it being more expensive to rent in this country than it's ever been before, it seems. Indeed, Michael. And um, this report last week shows um, uh, increases every single quarter for the last um, six years. So that's 24 quarters where rents increased consistently um, every single time. Um, so there's no kind of shocks in this, in the sense that there's not, nothing has kind of um, substantially changed or reversed. It's just that the trend just keeps going up the way in terms of rent levels. Um, and you know, in, in areas that are kind of outside of these rent pressure zones, we're, we're thinking of places like Waterford and Limerick, um, rent increases are, are, are going up by about 20% year on year. Um, private rents have doubled in some areas of Dublin since 2011. Mm. Um, and when you look at Leinster, in fact, um, outside of Dublin, so the likes of Louth and Mees, 
um, what we're seeing is a, a fewer and fewer um, rental uh, houses and apartments mm. available to rent. So that's really, really tightened up in the commuter counties. And the cost has increased in both counties by an excess of 90%, 13% in the last year in Meath, 13.4% in Louth, 1,253. The average cost of renting in Meath, 1,161. The average in Louth. But uh, when you're paying out that sort of money, it really begs the question, where are people going to live? Because it's simply not affordable for uh, so many people who are working in this country full time. Uh, they're earning less than 20,000. You're talking about coming up with 13, 14, 15,000 in rent alone. Rent is a huge share of people's um, disposable income. And um, we say that people um, are in kind of, uh, I guess, housing distress if they're spending more than 30% of their of their income on rent and if um you know families and individuals have to pay the likes of you know 1400 1800 even more um for rent that's a huge chunk of their household um budget and that has big implications for them trying to balance everything else in terms of food and energy costs and and and, and all of the costs back to school right now um, all of those expenses for families. Um, so it's not just whether people can get access to mm. accommodation, which is a huge um, worry because of the lack of supply, especially in the likes of Louth and Meath, but also um, where people are in rented accommodation, their ability just to kind of stay afloat and um, and, and manage to um, have something left over at the, at the end of the month. That's a real challenge for a lot of individuals and families. Uh, and is it that people are earning double in Louth and Meath, let's say, than they are in Leach? where rent is 557 euro it's a different housing market um, and it depends on uh, individuals obviously it varies mm-hmm. but generally speaking salaries will be will be lower in Leitrim um, there's less economic activity there are fewer people so there's a, a much less of a demand mm. for housing whereas in, in Louth and Meath um, and indeed uh, you know Mon- even you know Mon- and Cavan um, there is more of a demand because it's within um, you know these, these are mm. uh, commuting areas of not only um, Dundalk, Drogheda and Avon, but also, but also Dublin. And, you know, we saw it in the boom. We're seeing it again now, this leapfrogging where, where people um, can't afford to live in Dublin. So many of the people from the, the, the greater Dublin area are choosing to, to live in uh, Louth, Mees, Monaghan, Cavan. Um, and um, that's on top of uh, the people who are already, you know, who, who, who have been born and who've grown up in, in North Leinster, in the northeast, um, and you know, clearly they're also um, looking for housing to either buy or to rent, um, and it's in a situation where the um, the houses are just not getting built at a rate which anywhere near meets um, demand and, and and won't do for many years to come. Uh, does it need to be so expensive, though? I mean, I'm sure people are earning more along the computer belt and in uh, the city uh, than they are in places like Leitrim as a result of that. So they have more spending power, land is more valuable, houses are more expensive, and then uh, you get more in rent. But uh, does it need to be as expensive where we have a situation where it's double the cost to rent? We don't believe it should be as expensive. And that's why we're saying that the... Uh uh, the rental market is creaking at the seams. 
because um, a lot of people are benefiting from the high rents. Many um, landlords are benefiting from very high rents. The problem is it's the renters that really suffer. And that's why we want to see these rent pressure zones that were um, introduced in certain parts of the country from the end of 2016 and and were introduced in, in other parts of the country since then. Um, we want that extended to the rest of the country um, because it only covers about 55% of the population currently. And secondly, we want the you know that 4% those 4% annual increases to be to be observed. Mm. And what we're seeing is but that's the uh, biggest problem, is it not? I, I mean, it's one thing saying you can only increase the rent by 4%, and uh, the reality on the ground uh, being a very different thing, and rents increasing by 10, 12, 13, 14% in some cases. Indeed, and currently, you know, the law uh, provides a tenant um, is to be informed of uh, like a previous rent, uh, but there's nothing to ensure that. So it's very difficult for um, someone coming along and looking for rented accommodation to know exactly what the previous rent was. The problem is that many land, like many landlords, are very good. You know, um, majority are, are excellent landlords. There is um, a, a group of landlords, however, that are trying to find ways of circ- circumventing um, this rent pressure zone legislation. And sometimes they're just simply increasing the rents because they know it's um, a landlord's market. In other um, situations, they're using some of the exceptions set out in the law. Things like, you know, if, if you sell the property, if you um, uh, if a family member wants to kind of needs to move into the property, or if you're going to do substantial renovation to the property, um, you can end you can end the tenancy. But what we've been seeing in the last eighteen months is um, the phenomenon of mm. landlords saying they're going to do one of those things, you know, stating they're going to do one of those three things, and then turning around about a couple of months later and then just reletting that property to another to another tenant mm. for, say, four, €500 Euro, um, a month more. And um, why is the problem eluding the government? Uh, and uh, you've said that the government is doing little to stop it, but not just this government, consecutive governments. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a whole range of, of issues. I mean, since the 1980s, there simply wasn't enough social housing built um, there simply wasn't enough kind of affordable rental housing built. Um, the focus was on uh, during the the boom year, the, the previous boom, the, the focus was very much on um, own, you know mm. owner occupied housing, but also. So it's historical, and they've inherited the problem. Does that mean that the government is right when it says you need to give us more time? Well, they'll, they'll have to have more time because they're not they can't solve this overnight, and there's some quick one wins but there are also um, a lot of things that will take um, time to kind of roll out especially the supply the supply is just going to take some time and unfortunately a lot of people uh, need housing yesterday mm. and that's why so many um, families are, are in emergency accommodations and that's why a lot of families are doubling up you know you've got multiple generations in the one home mm. um, because they have no other option there's nowhere to move out to um, but that's not to leave the, the the government off the hook. There are other things they can do. They can invest more in the prevention side of things. Mm. So um, the work that we are doing in terms of tenancy protection, um, there's always more scope for investment in promoting that service and in investing in that service. So so more people have the chance to um, hold on to their tenancies, hold on to their homes, and further changes to the legislation, which, in fairness, government is looking at currently. Mm. 
Sorry, I was going to say, I suppose a, a lot of people would say they've had time. They've had a, a lot of time, uh, Fine Gael anyway, in, in Paris since 2011. Indeed, um, the, yeah, the Fine Gael have been, um, uh, I, I guess, uh, in power for that time. And um, some of these uh, processes are incredibly uh, slow, much slower than, than, than we'd like. Uh, we do think there's, there's further work to be done in terms of rent transparency, for example. Um, so, I mean, we're looking at real and effective rent transparency, which where people can see exactly what the rents are and where for certain properties um, and measures to hold landlords to account um, and give potential and sitting tenants the details they need to make informed choices and to be able to challenge an illegal rent setting um, at the residential tenancies board. That's one element. There are other elements within the the legislation, but the provision of of affordable rental housing um, has to come on stream sooner rather than later, Um, and as, as well as the provision of social housing either by the local authorities or by the, the housing associations, the, the approved housing bodies. So th- there's a number of measures, both in terms of the supply side and also legislation in relation to the private rented sector, which need to be done. Some of them, as I say, are quicker wins than others. Mm. But um, I guess the, the broader housing crisis is something that um, has been, uh, I guess, for a generation um, neglected. Um, and, and things were, I guess, the market was let decide a lot of things in relation to um, a focus on uh, owner-occupied housing, um, not enough of a focus on providing social and affordable housing during the boom years. Um, and then we're play- and now we're playing catch-up because so many families um, right across the income spectrum and individuals find themselves in the private rented sector. And the private rented sector is still not fit for purpose because of um, rent levels continuing to increase, um, as, we, okay. as we talked about earlier, okay. quality of the housing and security of tenure. I mean, a lot of mm. people, even on, on the housing assistance payments, are very worried about losing their home if their landlord decides to sell or substantially refurb, or if a family member moves in. Okay, we have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thank you for your time and for joining us this morning. John Mark McCafferty, Chief Executive Officer of Threshold. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Lots coming in in relation to your interview with Loretta at the top of the programme. Uh, a text to say is Loretto is to be admired for telling her story just goes to show the power that Brenton Smith had and the way he was moved around was shame on those who allowed this to happen shame on the Catholic Church I won't be going to see any pub I was at the last visit, but will not be there this time. Mm, yeah, it's a, an amazing story. It really is hard to believe uh, the high esteem that Brendan Smith was held in by so many people uh, and then how so many people knew what he actually was and how he acted mm. and how he raped and abused little boys and little girls. And they decided that uh, the Holy Church was uh, too important uh, to turn him in. Uh, so instead of reporting him to the mm. authorities, they sent him on to other places where he was allowed to continue as a, a priest and rape more little boys and little girls. And that went on for 40 years. Horrendous. Mary says, it's so hard to listen to what your guest went through with. 
Brendan Smith. It's the people that cover it up, Michael, that are as bad in the priesthood or in any part of society. It should not be covered up. And Mary feels that it's time for the Pope to address this properly. Mm. Uh, Nolene from Drogheda says, Oh, Michael, what that poor woman suffered. The Catholic Church had hang its head in shame for the cover-up which allowed priests to go on and continue to abuse little innocent kids in other parishes. It just makes me so mad when you think of all that could have been prevented. Yeah, and Brendan Smith is just one story. Mm. Loretto is just one of his victims, one of the people who survived what he did to her. There were hundreds and thousands in America and hundreds of Brendan Smiths. Yes. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In Pennsylvania alone, uh, and as I was saying earlier on, they believe that this is going to move from one state to another, and we're going to hear thousands and thousands more stories like it. Pat from Carrick Cross says, "When you listen to stories like Loretto's, you think of all the priests that are going to be coming to Ireland for the Pope's visit, and you wonder should we be extra vigilant because of that?" And he says, "Of course, there are good priests, and not all priests." are paedophiles but at the same time maybe we should be on the alert Okay, because of the threat that they pose. God, that's an awful thing for a priest to hear this morning I'm sure It is, I'm sure, Mm. yes. If people can still have their faith in God that lady, your guest, is searching for something and I really hope she finds it, uh, says another listener. What she was subjected to is unforgivable How can any church uh, stand over something like that? Yeah, well, I suppose uh, <laughs> you could ask that question a million times, it would seem, certainly thousands of times over. Michael, I'm in tears listening to that interview. This comes in from Debbie, who phoned in. The church needs to hold its hand up in relation to all the abuse that went down on. It's only then that the church can move on and that the victims can feel that at least they are being apologised to for all that was done to them. It's not apologies that people want, I think. See, this is the thing. The church has apologised. Mm. They apologised for Brendan Smith. They apologised uh, for all of uh, 
the different uh, rapists and paedophiles, uh, child abusers uh, that they had in their midst that they protected for covering it up, for moving them on, yes. for sending them for treatment, for doing all these other things yes. instead of doing the right thing. Uh, they've apologised for it before. People are saying now, including Archbishop Jeremy Martin, uh, that the church, the Pope needs to do something to show that it, it's going to act. Alan says that he was brought up a Catholic but has no time for a church that is still making excuses, he feels, for the amount of abuse worldwide. I just shudder to think of the amount that actually went on and the numbers affected. Yet for so long, the church didn't want to know, wanted to save face, didn't want the the name of the church to be dragged through the mud. And yet they allowed children to keep being abused. Mm. Uh, Another text says, uh, victims, Michael, were let down twice. They were abused by priests and then you had the Catholic hierarchy covering it up and moving priests on so that they could abuse again. Unforgivable. Mm. It's, it's, yeah, I mean... I think if I remember at the time, Sean Brady, uh, when he took the oath from the two little boys up in Dundalk in 1975, he said he wasn't authorised to report Brendan Smith, uh, which was either the most naive thing I ever heard or untrue, uh, because I don't think any thinking adult would feel that they need to be given the go-ahead by somebody else to go and report Uh, that somebody is uh, abusing and raping little children. We had a text from a Kells listener who says it's very hard on the good genuine priests, Michael, and there are many of them. I think it's very tough nowadays being a priest and we should remember that not all priests are bad. Indeed. Uh, And some of the good ones have been banished yeah, Michael says another listener, Sean, says, I feel sorry for those who are still committed to the church today, Michael, because you're friend upon for it, but we should respect people's rights to remain in the Catholic Church. They may not, they may not agree with what has happened and they may want the church to change, but if that's their belief and they want to remain within the church, it should be respected. Oh, I don't think there's any disrespect now, in fairness uh, to the church or people's beliefs, I think what people want to do is protect children Mm. and to make sure that the church doesn't allow paedophiles to come in and rape and abuse children and cover up for them, to protect them and cover up for them. That's what people want to stop. Regarding the Pope's visit, we had a listener in touch who says that she has tickets, Michael, but she's not going to go now because of the huge walk to the Phoenix Park and just think that it's it's tough on the older generation because many of them just aren't able to go because of the logistics mm. and feels it's just not good enough that it wasn't organised better. Yeah, I can't understand why they don't have little buses going up and down instead of all of these, I don't know, I think it's a, a 75 walk before you stand at a gate for 60 minutes and uh, another 75 minute walk then for... Uh, an hour yes. and a half mass and then another 60 minute but I don't know I mean I, I don't know why you have to do so much walking surely it must be possible to shuttle people and it was interesting because we also Margaret also got in touch to say Michael do you know anybody going to see the Pope because I don't even people I thought would be definites to go are not going mm. and maybe that has to do mm. with you know with the fact that a lot of people feel it's it's too big of an obstacle yeah. Mm. Yeah. well it's 
like the guards, I think, says, uh, you've got to think of it like uh, climbing Crow Patrick. Uh, So, yeah, it's going to be quite a challenge for some people, an impossible challenge, undoubtedly for many uh, elderly people. uh, But... uh, that's uh, all that's on offer. I I, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of people there. I think they're talking about in the region of half a million. Uh, they're selling tickets, obviously, and uh, or giving tickets, whatever it is, and uh, people will be there and we'll see it uh, for ourselves. And uh, a lot happens. coming from mm-hmm. overseas yeah. as well, Michael. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Yes. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's not just a papal visit. It's a very big occasion in the church's calendar. It's that's the right. world meeting yes. of families and they will be coming from every corner of the world. Just on rents, uh, Michael says this listener didn't want to give a name it's so easy to find yourself without a roof over your head I was happy out with my life in a grand job in rented accommodation but then suddenly the house was being put up for sale where I was living and couldn't find anything suitable that I could afford mm. lucky for me I could go home to my parents as I was able to commute for work but not everyone is in that position. And what do these people do? Mm, yeah. That's the question. Yeah, well, I don't know if you'd be doing a lot of saving given what you're expected to pay in rent anyway. Well, Michael, we'll finish on that one. All right, thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. That's 1850-715-958. Marie and Maggie are taking calls uh, this morning if you want uh, to speak with one of them. Or you can text us on 86 658 Michael Reed on LM. FM. Well, the Flacule was undoubtedly a great opportunity for Drogheda to showcase itself, and it did so in every respect. Uh, thousands of people, possibly as many as half a million people, reveled in the festivities. Uh, the Mayor of Drogheda Independent, Councillor Frank Godfrey, is on the line, and by all accounts, Mayor, it was a, a huge success. Yes, indeed, Michael, the Mayor of Drogheda, that is. <laughs> what did I say? Uh, the mayor of the Trot uh, Independent. <laughs> Did I? Oh my God! I'm sorry. Right, no, I forgive you. Oh, I beg your pardon, Michael. Uh, we we've had a tough week and a great week in the history of Trotter, yeah. and we're all very proud uh, today yeah. in Ireland's largest town to have the Taoiseach and um, the president here all in the one week and uh, to host the flag all here in the northeast and the job that uh, everyone done, the community in action, the business sector, the Gardaí, and they were magnificent. With Andrew, uh, and Waters, and uh, everyone can take a clap on the back. It was a great occasion, probably the greatest flakhole ever. And everybody is getting ready now for the next flakhole. And I can only anticipate that we could have uh, seven hundred fifty thousand to a million people here in Drada. Nothing has been ever seen like this, and it was a great event in the history of Drada and the biggest gathering ever to hit the town. Mm, well, no doubt. Uh uh, and uh, I'm sure that the preparations are already underway for 2019 uh, well, and the no, huge no, no doubt people are ready and talking already. This Nothing has ever happened like this. And the injection into the economy, maybe t- uh, 40, 50 million uh, euro was uh, something else too for businesses. Uh, they did very, very well. And you could see uh, the atmosphere was electric mm. around town. And everywhere you went, you know, from the dome 
uh, up to the G-Rig up in Bolton Street. It, there was so much music and uh, 7,000 musicians, I think, was in Drada. And uh, Drada had been an old garrison town in, in the past, uh, not a lot of Irish, uh, but now I can see for the future so many young people taking up instruments and learning more about Irish and our culture and our language. It was just unbelievable. Mm. And Drada done it in style. And as mayor of the historic town, I'm so happy and so delighted for everybody because hours, years of, of, of work went into this. And may I place on record those who were involved in it. Lola Robson of local Kyoto, she, she can take a clap in the back. They were magnificent. And also Joan Martin, Low County Council and Paddy Donnelly. They were also magnificent. And Lawrence O'Murica, who is the chief of Kyoto, he is a great Irishman. And it was great to see them all in town and of course Larnsgate Gate what we couldn't mention the flower without Larnsgate Gate that was the backdrop and the history of Drada there and so many uh, m- musicians and dancers in and around it and the atmosphere was great and the people of Drada they played their part mm. putting out Bunting's flags on the entrance to the town Absolutely, and the decoration yeah. of mm. the town people like Barry McHugh putting up the flowers and all the, 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 the businesses around the town on the early hours of the morning mm. And, there the, so and, many the, and, and the good spirit of it all. I mean, I think uh, oh, there was, there was a great, great atmosphere. The great town, spirit. Yeah. People, people mm. didn't mm. want to leave the streets of Drada. They wanted this flat to go on, on, on for Christmas, mm. you know. And, and do, you uh, think, do you think, though, that there were any lessons to be learned uh, from the event this year so that it can be improved well, next look, year? I, I, I'm not going to get into that, but uh, what I want to say is there was inconveniences. There was issues with taxis. There was issues with this and that. And uh, something of the magnitude of a, a flat hole where there's half a million people coming to town you're going to have problems Mm. and we learn from that and next year we'll be better prepared but I can tell you people I've been talking to and they said they were in all the flag shows around the country over the years they said Drada was the best and the layout of the town Drada never looked as well by the way we still have some work to do on some of our buildings, I have been a campaign uh, a year and a half in preparation for the flower, and um, we, we we want them to, to, to look after the buildings because Drada is an ancient old town, and it's what this is what they want to come to see. Okay, and is it possible that the flower will find its home in Drada? That it'll be here for years to come? No. No, it won't be here for years to come. It'll be here for next year, yeah. and that will be it. And they might get it then down the road, maybe another 15 years' time. Okay. Uh, there's so many towns looking for the flag. You know, like some mm. people are saying that the flag's going to be here for three years. Uh, that's a myth. That's not uh, going to happen because the plans will be already for 2020. But uh, talking about 2020, we should be planning for a major festival here. Well, that's uh, the Florida. thing, isn't it? That's what people like want. People, people, Galway, you know? people have seen what can be done. And they're saying, well, look, you know, not only did we enjoy it, but uh, it gave mm. the town a, a great boost, and not just for this mm, weekend, mm, because mm. no doubt we'll have return visitors and sort of that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, can uh, something be put in place on a permanent basis? Well, you know, you can have a mini flower every year yourself. There's no no problem with the local um, cultures, culture and uh, having their own mini flower, which could attract maybe five, ten thousand. Yes, but if the, if the flowers in Clare or yeah, whatever, I mean, you're not going to get yeah. five hundred thousand people to draw to or, or, no, no, or no, any town. So, so, yeah. so, so we have to think of something else, do we not? Yeah, that's right. And I think that will all happen. Uh, you know, th- this flower was uh, flower was about new friendships for Drada. 
uh, the visitors. I want to thank them all that came to the town and and they were all delighted. I have had no negative uh, stuff on on Drogheda at all with regards to the flower. Everybody was overjoyed. The atmosphere, as I said, was electric and there were smiles on everyone's faces and the, 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 the locals embraced all the, the visitors and everybody came here and as I said, you could, it couldn't have went better, Michael. And yeah. I want to thank the press and yourself and all the coverage. Um, uh, you know, everybody was talking Drogheda this, this this week and everybody from Ireland and all over the world was here and they came from near and far and you're going to have more of that. That's why I anticipate that we could have up on 750,000 next year, the biggest flower uh, numbers ever across Ireland. And I believe you were singing yourself at Lawrence's Gate. Oh, indeed I was. I, I'm horsing now. I was singing and dancing and I, never, I had a ball and we all enjoyed ourselves. And, uh, you know, it was a, a week we will remember forever. And uh, as I said, uh, uh, we'll, we'll never forget it. And I want to pl- thank everybody that has been involved. And I probably have left somebody else out. The council workers were magnificent as well in the clean-up of the town and how well the town... But. This is a new beginning, and we want the town looking well all year round. It was the best thing that ever happened to, to, to draw the Michael. Maybe so, maybe so. Well, it's I certainly... think so. You, you tell me something better. Oh, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not contradicting yeah. you. Yeah. No, I know. Thank you. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And, uh, apologies for, for uh, no. uh, the, the introduction. I, I don't no, know what was about. The pen, the good yeah, problem. Well, no, that's no, true. No, yeah. that. <laughs> I, I don't know what I was thinking of, but thank you indeed, Mayor, for joining us here this morning. The independent yeah. councillor, Frank Godfrey, is the Mayor of Drogheda and has no links or associations to newspapers that we're aware of, apart from uh, speaking to them on a, a regular basis. Now, as you said, there were a lot of people in Drogheda over the course of uh, the weekend because of the FLA. Lots of people from every corner of the country, every corner of the globe. Uh, the President was here, obviously, uh, to open the event and uh, the Taoiseach was here over the weekend. He's been speaking with Ailey Sheehy. Yeah, it's been really wonderful. It's my, my first time uh, to make it to the FLA Kill and uh, had the opportunity to spend the afternoon uh, around the town and I have to say it's um, a wonderful occasion. The streets are thronged, the there's great music. Um, Drada's looking really well and I uh, really want to pay tribute to the council and the volunteers and the organisers and everyone who's put on uh, what is an extraordinary uh, cultural event uh, in the Irish cultural calendar and I understand that maybe half a million people will visit Drada at some point. Uh, so it's been really great this year and I'm sure it's going to be just as good if not better next year as well. How important is such an event not only for the local economy but to keep Irish music and culture alive? Well, I know it's um, you know it's hugely important economically for for Drada. People estimate that it's worth you know maybe forty million euros to um, to local traders, and that obviously supports jobs and that's money that circulates around the economy. Um, but it's also a really important uh, national event. Uh, if you think about the big events that happen around the year, uh, you know whether it's sporting events or other events, um, there really isn't any that attracts as many as half a million people. Uh, so it's extraordinary that. Um, it is so well attended and really important, I think, for our national and national cultural identity uh, that we have uh, an event that really celebrates Irish music and Irish dance and all the things that define us as a nation. I'd really recommend it to people. Um, like I say, it's my first time at the Black Hill. Um, the weather's good, the town is looking great, um, and it's a really enjoyable experience and very much a family experience as well. Uh, so, you know, very safe and very nice to bring the kids along. Uh, and if you can't make it this year, of course, it's back and draw the next year, so the opportunity is there. And I think Drada's 
um, one of the best locations in many ways for it because it's you know accessible not just from Dublin but also from Northern Ireland and a lot of the people around the town have come from Dublin or come from the north so uh, I think that's been a real advantage. In another matter, Taoiseach, are you concerned over Deputy Peter Fitzpatrick's decision not to seek a nomination for Fine Gael in the next election? Um, well, I spoke to Peter after he made his decision and, uh, uh, you know, I'm disappointed he's not going forward again. He's a good colleague, a good TD. Uh, I think he would have come through the convention and I think he would have been re-elected again as a TD. Um, but look, like I say, I spoke to him. He's um, made his decision for his own reasons uh, and uh, he's going to continue as a Fine Gael TD representing Loud um, until the next election whenever it comes. And uh, we'll have a convention in September and the party members in Loud will decide um, who goes forward uh, and represents us um, whenever that comes. And could this mean that Fianna Gael might lose a seat in the Louth and East Meath constituency given the fact that Deputy Fitzpatrick is very popular and well-liked? Uh, we'll look at, we're, we're never complacent about, um, about, about our seats. Um, we have two seats out of five uh, in Loud. Um, narrowly won that last time, but as you know, since then, uh, the party support has recovered um, and we had two seats in the election before. So we'll be fighting really hard to make sure that uh, Loud has the benefit of being represented by two Fine Gael TDs uh, after the next election, um, but never taking anything for granted. Uh, the people um, own the seats, not the politicians. Uh, so whatever ticket, whatever combination of candidates we put forward, uh, you can be sure they'll be working really hard to convince the people of Loud that uh, it's right to vote Fine Gael again. Would you say Fine Gael is now in election mode, so to speak? Uh, no, we're not. Um, there will be elections next year, of course, local and European elections, so people are uh, gearing up for them. Uh, I'm not gearing up for a general election because uh, I'd like the constant supply agreement that we have with Fianna Fáil extended uh, to 2020, uh, giving the country the stability that it needs to uh, negotiate a deal on Brexit and actually bring the country through, through Brexit. Uh, so our focus is very much on getting the job done and making sure the economy stays strong, that people have jobs and rising incomes, focusing on getting a good deal on Brexit and trying to deal with some of the very difficult challenges we're facing in, in health and, uh, and housing and other areas. So uh, very much um, focused on uh, what matters to people. And lastly, Taoiseach, what's your relationship with Micheál Martin like at the moment? Um, I think it's business-like uh, and workman-like. You know, ultimately, uh, I'm the Taoiseach, he's the leader of the opposition. Uh, I'm the leader of one party and he's the leader of another. Um, but I do find that when we uh, meet one-to-one that it's a frank and useful meeting and that we could potentially work together in the future. But the reality is um, uh, I'm leading the government and he's leading the opposition. So uh, the relationship uh, is always going to be um, somewhat adversarial and that's the nature of, uh, of politics. But like I say, uh, I think he is somebody that um, uh, I, I could work with in the future. But that's for then, I think. Taoiseach Leo Vradker speaking with Ailey Sheehy. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, mental health services are back in uh, the spotlight uh, again and child and adolescent services back in the spotlight again with a third of the beds available for children and teens with mental health problems closed in this country. There's 74 beds in all and just 50 are open. This is due to staff shortages according to the HSE in a response that it's given to Sinn Féin. It says it hopes to increase capacity in September by opening beds at St. Eta's and then there will be new beds in the National Children's Hospital but that won't be till 2022. Sinn Féin has also been told uh, that appointments with jigsaw services 
services can be as long as 13 weeks. This is uh, the mental health services that focuses on young people in this country. In County Meath, the waiting time is 10 weeks. And Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin councillor on the line, uh, you're somewhat concerned about this, obviously. Oh, absolutely, Michael, and, and thanks for the opportunity. I, I think um, in any of these things, what you do in terms of, and these are uh, information released to my colleague Louise O'Reilly, um, you get a window into sections of the services here. And uh, as media commentators and as politicians and as concerned citizens, we try to, to, to piece that together. And what you get a, a, a window into here, as far as I can see, is you know, mental health challenges, uh, there is a spectrum of them. You know, they go from, and, and I'm not a, psycho- a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but, you know, from milder cases to acute cases and, and very severe cases. And what we have here is a picture that across that spectrum, right across that spectrum, from the from the mild early intervention stuff that Jigsaw does to the acute stuff uh, in, in terms of um, inpatient acute beds, there is deficiencies right across the board. There's, you know, targets being missed right across the board. There is uh, a lack of capacity based on figures that were set out um, in, in A Vision for Change, which was a document agreed. You know, we're familiar with this idea of cross-party consensus in relation to healthcare. We had it and have it in relation to mental health services. Mm. And we've had it for more than a decade. It was a 10-year roadmap and uh, the 10 years has passed for sure, and more, and more, you know. So, so it was 2006 that that, that that document was published, and it it set out a vision for a recovery model, for community care, for you know care as close to the home as possible, for you know to move away from the, from the institutions. Yeah. And fundamental to and, that is, and many of the institutions closed, uh, but the other things didn't happen. That that's exactly it, and that's the that's I, I think that's the difficulty that people have when when they hear about health service reform more generally and, and specifically mental health reform because you can see the situation uh, in communities right across the country where you, you where you then have voluntary local communities well-intentioned uh, organizations coming up to step into the to the breach to step into the gap that has been created by the by the lack of funding by the lack of of resources put into mental health and there's I think it's the starkest contrast, actually, in, in health services, the rhetoric that is out there mm. in terms of, you know, our commitment, government commitment to mental health services. Um, we had, you know, we had a, a junior minister in County Mead with, with responsibility for mental health services. The rhetoric that went with, with our, the commitment to, to mental health and the actual the actual commitment to it. And, and Sinn Féin has drawn attention to that at every every budget. Uh, we, we haven't been on our own. Other political parties and advocacy groups have, have done the exact same. Where, yeah. Well, we've actually had to expose the government where they say, oh, we're committing 35 million. Well, actually, that's only 15 million. Um, and, and of that 15 million, it won't all be spent. You know, yeah, so- but Helen McEntee, uh, the minister you were talking about, couldn't spend the 20 million. She wasn't able to spend the 20 million because they couldn't get the staff. And, and again, you see, you see, all of these things, Michael, are related. You know, so, so we have the argument in ter- right across the health service in terms of recruitment and retention. We have it in general practice. We have it in consultant posts. We have it in junior hospital doctors. And the government is very well aware of it. The same things apply. So, so for example, there are 38 vacant psychi- psychiatric nurses posts in the Loudon Mead area. 
the, the government are aware of that. The, the, the PNA, the Psychiatric Nurses Association, have identified what the government need to do to, to address the, the concerns there. But the government aren't. So they're standing with one hand saying there's money available uh, and the other hand they're not addressing the, the issues that mm. have been identified both by the professions themselves but also by, by academic researchers that are saying look this is clear this is you know cause and effect if you do A you will get B if you don't address the concerns of, of these professionals they will do exactly what they're telling you they're going to do so, so I, I just I, I, you know I think it's a uh, it's mealy-mouthed now, really, in my opinion. All right, tell us a, a little bit about the Jigsaw services, this waiting time. I, I mean, why would people be looking for help from Jigsaw? They should be seeing within four weeks. Uh, instead of it, it being one month, uh, they're waiting two and a half months. Yeah, so, so my understanding of the Jigsaw services, and, and um, again, this is a, is a group that was, you know, uh, essentially from a, a bottom-up, a ground-up uh, approach to, to community uh, mental health services. They they are exclusively for, for young people. They, they cater for the age from 12 to 25. And they're early intervention, you know, so... so um, you can approach, you know, uh, and, and they have a facility in Bruce Hill in, in, in Navan, and they have thir- twelve other facilities across across the state. It's, it's early intervention. It's you know, so so it's for for people who you know have stresses or or other anxieties or mm. or uh, you know have 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 problems that they they feel they 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 want to talk about and that they should talk about, you know, so whether it be in relation to relationships or school or drinking drugs or, or sexuality or, uh, and they provide a service where, you know, you can go in for an initial, initial consult and then you would be, if appropriate, relayed on to uh, one of their own qualified therapists who are, you know, professionally trained and, and uh, have all the necessary accreditation or else they will triage you and say, you know, ours isn't the service for you. You know, maybe escalate escalate up to a, you know, the the, the CAMS team who deal with more moderate and, and and severe cases, where incidentally there is, you know, even worse waiting lists uh, in my understanding. Mm. Um, because of the, the the lack of staff, and so, so well, that's uh, it. It's this early intervention, uh, as you say, that Jigsaw offers. Uh, their hope is uh, that no young person feels alone, isolated, or disconnected uh, from others, because the consequences of that can uh, be damaging in the long term. And I suppose if you intervene earlier, well, then you prevent the need for people to need these beds that I was talking about at the start of our interview, which don't exist in a lot of cases. A third of them are, are not available because of the staff shortages. And uh, I see that in Louth uh, there's uh, a very long waiting time of between 18 months and two years for the disability division of CAMS, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service. Yeah, and, and it's it's part of the same picture, you know. So as you drill down, you know, from, from, from the top down in terms of the, the different uh, cohorts or patient populations that are in need of... of specific and particular services they, you know so so you can imagine in, in, in terms of the disability services the demand will be less than, than the, the, the the general population so therefore it's, it's more specialist and and you know if you don't have the three members of staff in that case well then the, the, the service is, is really impacted on so so I, I think it's it's the same picture uh, Michael and, and I think an, an important point in, in relation to it is that all of this is happening whilst we have 
an increase in demand. So, so uh, Jigsaw said that demand has gone up by 47% year on year. There is a huge increase. You know, there is thankfully a, a greater awareness in relation to mental health challenges. Is that what's driving the increase in demand? Is it, is it awareness? Because that's really a massive increase, 47%. No, no, it's, it's, a ma- it's a massive increase. Mm. But, but there's two things. I think there's, there's, a, there's awareness, but also we live in a different world, M- Michael. You know, we live in a world that is hyper-interconnected, that people are faced. And, and I know people who who are teachers, who are principals, who run Irish language colleges, and all of them relay, you know, the, 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 the things we're seeing now, the challenges that we're seeing now in terms of, of uh, um, working with kids are very different than they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, the, the anxieties that children have, the, the mental health challenges that they have, because the world is hyper-connected and, and, you know, lots of people spend an awful lot of time online and it's not necessarily that healthy of an environment. Very often, it's, it's an unhealthy environment um, and that, you know, I'm, I'm aware that there are specifically, you know, like predators that 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 um, uh, operate online, specifically preying on, mm-hmm. on vulnerable younger people, and, and there, there are international examples of that. But all of the, all of it paints a picture of right. This is the this is the world that people are operating in. We need to to have the adequate recognition of it and the adequate support. And it needs to be more than than a rhetoric of we're generally supportive of it. It needs to be you know delivered in terms of you know fees um, and and uh, and hands in 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 involved in these services and uh, and actually delivering the services that people are. are are actually asking for and are needing because they're on their phones. For sure, yeah, no, for for, for sure, no, no, no for, uh, absolutely, and I, th- I think that's an important point that, you know, and, and maybe it's only in years to come that we will reflect on on this period and and you know the the uh, the age of technology and social media and and what goes on in relation to that that um, we will we will look at us uh, you know we will look at the the increasing challenges that people are facing in terms of of, of mental health mm. and the prioritisation that needs to happen as a result of that. It really is strange though, isn't it? A strange world that we live in that we're doing this or we're allowing young people to do this to themselves. For sure, yeah, yeah. And and, and I think to, to some degree the genie is out of the box that um, that this that technology and um, these various platforms um, you know, they're ahead of, of the game, they're ahead of policymakers, they're ahead of of, uh, of nation states and um, it's it's about trying, um, which is I suppose a different argument, uh, about trying to to introduce some degree of regulation on it because um, I can see, you know, the, the, you know, and I have a, a, a little eight-month-old myself, you know, you're kind of thinking of, of what sort of world he'll be growing up and I know friends with, with older kids and I know the the challenges that they face and they're very different than, than you know, the world that, that I grew up on, you know, 20, 25 years ago, you know, and, and that's only a short time and uh, we can, you know, I, I think it's, you know, at the same time it's important, I think an important point to make, Michael, in relation to this is that if people, you know, feel that they require services, that they should go and seek support. You know, I'm not saying here that, that mm-hmm. you know, we're, obviously we're, we're given a, a political analysis and a critique, but I think it's important that, you know, people feel that there are supports there and there are supports through friends and family um, and, and the services. They're, they're, they are doing their best that they can. So people should, should, should always make that call. Um, 
But I think it's important that that uh, we have a sense of the change in landscape of society, you know, and, and there's lots of academics working in the world of, of analysing how politics goes and post-truth and all that sort of stuff. But I think, um, you know, it's important that we have a sense of, of the change in nature of society, the way people get their information, that, that, that you know, their own lived experiences and that we, you know, we, we, we get a bit better at... Um, recognising the importance of community and of support okay. and of uh, solidarity. All right, listen, I have to leave it there, but thank you indeed for joining us here this morning. Sinn Féin Councillor, Darren O'Rourke. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, let's uh, talk uh, about a campaign to get construction workers uh, to join a trade union. It's called Building Workers Know Your Rights. It'll hold a public meeting in McHugh's pub in Drogheda this Thursday evening. Uh, Gus MacDonald is a construction worker himself, and he's here to tell us a, a little bit about the campaign. And this follows legislation that was introduced uh, by Jed Nash when he was uh, the Minister for employment uh, and a conversation that you had with them on the internet apparently yes well basically what happened was um from the legislation that um jed introduced um when he in his time as minister um there was a um an seo then signed into law which is a sectorial employment order for the construction industry setting uh, base rates Mm. That would be uh, the minimum for anyone working on a site, mm. whether they were you know, a new entrant or so on. They were set into law. So this is the minimum wage, minimum wage for, for the construction, construction industry yeah. uh, and different rates depending on the jobs that people were doing. Yeah, mm. that's exactly mm. So um, through the course of this Facebook um, exchange, um, I made it perfectly clear to Jed that I didn't believe that it would be able to work um, because of the... the parameters um, with which we're having to work in, in the construction industry, um, namely the subcontracting and uh, the contracts awarded to the subcontractors weren't going to um, be increased along with the wages of the workers to allow us to uh, see the 10% uh, wage increase and the rights that came along with the SEO hmm. introduced. So basically it's all been stagnated by the contracts, which is the point I made to Jed. Mm. Um, many months ago now. But that that doesn't, doesn't take a, a, away the onus from the subcontractor no. to pay the and rate which is in place by legislation. Yeah, and, and that's exactly where the problem lies. Mm. So through the course of this, um, I became more and more involved. Again, I, I, I met with Jed on a number of occasions. And mm. you know, just to, to be perfectly clear, uh, my political views and Jed's political views are at odds with each other in mm. a good many, many things. Uh, and um, you're a member of People Before Profit. There yes, is a, exactly. a number of uh, people involved in People Before Profit that are involved in this campaign as well. Yes. Um, OK. Yeah, but no, it, it's not the legislation that's flawed necessarily. It's that people are, are breaking employment laws. Yes. That now, But the problem is, right, um, when this was by design, like, I mean, let's be clear, the way it's all been worked out... Um, you could go into it very uh, deeply, but I'll, I'll briefly touch on it. Basically, what's happened is we've allowed um, a small minority at the very top of the industry to dictate to the rest of the industry how the industry is going to work. And that includes in terms of legislation, because they have the ear and the ability to bend the ear of politicians to introduce some legislation that largely is ineffective. And if we look at the SEO 
that's a prime example of how ineffective um, the legislation is. But if people are, are accepting payment, salaries, wages below the minimum rate, well, They're then break, it's breaking the law. Yes. Well, well, paying below the rate is breaking the law, but accepting it uh, is foolish, is it not? Uh, well, um, totally foolish. Yes, it is. Uh, I mean, you don't need to be a trade union member to report that, do you? Well, I'll tell you, the problem in construction is that we have, like, uh, literally a 14% membership of the unions, mm. which means that uh, even the SEO in its, uh, its entirety, really, that was one off the back of a 14% uh, membership throughout the uh, construction industry, out of 50,000 uh, 50, people employed in the industry. Mm. So now... The point we're trying to get across is if if we could get it up to, say, 25%, then what else could we gain? Now, if you look at the, the, the SEO in the sense that it gave us a 10% wage rise, it gave us a 10% wage rise on the top of a 20% drop in wages in 2008. So the reality is that we've, we've only really received a fraction of what we should have got mm. to get back to where we, we should be. Mm. And um, as I say, the crux of the whole problem, and it was, again, it was the, the original point that I made to Jed was that this is totally reliant on the subcontractors playing ball. Mm. And till now, it's not necessarily a case that the subcontractors aren't playing ball, but they're being squashed by uh, pressure from the top. Mm. And now they're starting to see, now that, as we're getting educated. Mm. Uh, but that, that is their problem, really, isn't yeah. it? It's up to them to fight their exactly. corner. Uh, and if they're not doing it, and they, it's an inability to pay or whatever it is, uh, yeah. they're breaking the law. So it's up to the worker to protect themselves and object yes. to that and to report it. Yes, Exactly that, uh, yeah. Okay, but you believe that that can only be done uh, by way of joining a, a trade union. Why is that? Well, I'm not saying that's the only way it can mm. be done. Um, part of the legislation that was introduced uh, in 2014, which was uh, the Workplace Relations Amendment Act, that that um, allowed, and we're seeing it now with Lloyds and we're seeing it with Ryanair and that, where collective bargaining was recognised by by the, the labour courts as a, you know that's your right it's your, your entitlement you don't have to join a union mm. what we're saying is that if you want to get um, your your rates and your rights and you want to do it in a timely fashion and as quickly as possible the easiest way to do it is through a union mm. and, and there is no dispute e- even now. if the union isn't recognised even if the, technically even if the union isn't recognised by the individual or your employer it is by the law that's the difference. Mm. Now, that, now, that, that's why Ryanair are allowed to force ahead with uh, what they're doing, and it's the same with uh, the Lloyd's pharmacy workers now. Um, the the problem is that uh, in construction there is this perception amongst the, the workforce that unions are generally, you know, not representative of the membership. Now that that can be true, and it is true to a certain degree. But what we're trying to say is. They're never going to be representative of you. What, what you need to understand is that you are the union. You, the membership is the union, not the leadership. The leadership can be changed and can be challenged. And what we're saying is, until we're in the union, we can't affect that change and we can't affect that challenge. Mm. So what we're saying to the, the broader um, uh, construction worker in, uh, industry, basically, is you need to start thinking about where it is you want to go? Do you want to carry on in this the, the vein that we're carrying on, on um, whereby you are not even getting the lawful rates? You're not even getting your rights? Or would you rather that we actually take maybe a wee step back, have a look about it, and, and these meetings are exactly about us. We want to educate you as to exactly what's happening, why it's happening, mm. how, um, how it's happening, 
how they do it. And, and uh, what's the, I'm just I'm sure I understand what you're saying. Is, is it that people don't identify with the politics of the leadership of the trade unions? Politics is a dirty word. In, but is that the essence? It's a dirty word. It's, it's, as soon as you mention something to do with politics or the union, hmm. people automatically... And that the trade down. unions are politicised and it's the totally. politics of that that people don't like, is it? Yeah, that pre- pretty much. Right, um, okay. there, there's been a, a massive disconnect with unions and, like, you know, again, I don't really want to draw too much into uh, the politi- uh, political side of it because hmm. really I don't care what um, political party you're affiliated to. Hmm. You need to understand that if you work in construction, you're, it doesn't matter whether you're a Fianna Gael voter or whether you're a Fianna Fáil mm, voter mm, or Labour mm. or whoever, or even people before profit like myself. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, if you are not getting your, you're not getting it. You're not mm. getting your rates. You're not getting your rights, and it's got nothing to do with um, you being, you know, a Fianna Gael Asso- voter associated, or such. Yeah. Uh, associated with a branch of the Labour Party, yeah. for example, it, the SIP2 trade union. It's purely to do because you are being exploited in your workplace and mm. that's what we're saying step forward come to the meetings have the, uh, have the discussion with us okay. and then we can hopefully through the course of the meeting start to organise a common course of action OK and you're meeting on Thursday evening Thursday as I said that's yes. so at 8 o'clock in McHugh's and Drogheda yeah. and we're, we're also doing one in Ballymun the day before so. OK and all right, thanks for that, Gus. That's no problem. All right, thank you for coming into us, uh, Gus MacDonald, uh, who uh, is uh, asking you to this uh, meeting. Uh, the campaign is called Builders Workers Know Your Rights, Building Workers Know Your Rights, uh, and there's a, a Facebook page uh, as well if you'd like to find out more. That's where we have to leave it for today. Our time has run out as once again. Remember, you'll be able to listen back to today's programme on a podcast, which will be available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks uh, to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray and the Control Tower. I'm Michael Godwinning. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.